This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, our dinosaur of the day is Mashiachosaurus. We have... (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) We have a bunch of dinosaur news. And we'd like to give an especially big thank you to our Stegosaurus patrons, Kyle, Brendan, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, and Remy Rodriguez, who just joined our Patreon. So thanks, Remy. Yeah, and thank you, everyone. If you want to join this elite group of stegosaurs, <laughs> <laughs> at least as, as we call them on Patreon, then please check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. So jumping right into the news, we have a new dinosaur, and this one was discovered in Argentina, and it's a hadrosaur, and usually hadrosaurs aren't that exciting but they're a lot less common in Gondwana than Laurasia, so it's always really exciting when we find them in South America. This one was found in Rio Negro, which is an area that's known for titanosaurs, not surprisingly, being in Argentina. And it's What was a hadrosaur doing there? I know. It's, it found some food that the titanosaurs hadn't already eaten, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so this one's named Bonapartosaurus rionegrensis. And the genus name honors Jose Fernando Bonaparte for his contributions to paleontology in Argentina. At first, I thought it might have been named after Napoleon Bonaparte. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) But no, that makes more sense. Yeah, that'd be a weird thing to name a dinosaur after, especially in Argentina. (laughs) And then the species named is obviously named after where it was found. So they found about 20 vertebrae, many with spines that are about 45 centimeters or 18 inches tall. And that's an estimation from their photos. They didn't say that, but I can never resist using their little scale bar and then measuring things on my own. (laughs) They also found some ribs, arms, legs, and hip bones. But even cooler than that, they found, quote, an almost complete articulated left foot, basically I said pez, and two blocks with tendons, end quote. So the foot looks just like something you'd buy as an example of a dinosaur foot for like a museum display or something. It's really cool looking, you know, it's the whole foot basically. Nice. (laughs) And it makes it pretty obvious that it's not a titanosaur and it's a hadrosaur because they have pretty obvious looking feet. And then that quote is the only place in the entire article where they mention that there are tendons that they found. Hmm. So maybe there's another article coming or something. That's what I'm thinking. Because it seems like kind of a significant thing to find a bunch of tendons 
And Bonapartosaurus is a sorolophene, which is very closely related to sorolophus. Makes sense. It's kind of its closest relative, even more than other sorolophenes. And sorolophus kind of looks like parasorolophus, but it's got a smaller crest. So it's not quite as exciting. And it's a bummer that they didn't find the head or they only found postcranial remains to use last week's fun fact. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> yeah. The authors also said that the fact that they found this dinosaur in South America means that there were likely, quote, at least two sorolophene dispersal events from North America, one towards South America and another toward Asia, no later than the late Campanian, end quote. And this is really surprising to me because the Campanian is in the late Cretaceous. So they're really saying that this happened within about 10 million years of the Chicxulub impact. And South America was pretty separate from all the other continents around that time. So they must have had to swim or maybe there was a very temporary bridge along. or something. Well, it's that this is a group that was found in North America and it's closely related to those. Oh, So right. they had to migrate south, basically. Hmm. It's pretty cool, though. And it's interesting to see some hadrosaurs popping up in South America. Because usually when I think of South America and the Cretaceous, it's just a ton of titanosaurs and then things trying to eat the titanosaurs. <laughs> Keyword trying. Yeah. <laughs> They, I'm sure they succeeded once in a while, otherwise they wouldn't have lasted very long. Yeah, but if there were enough other kinds of dinosaurs that were easier to prey upon. Could be, yeah. Some of those abelosaurids, though, look like they're adapted for going after titanosaurs. Mm. Next, there was news of 70 million-year-old dinosaur eggs that have been found on a building site in China. There's not too much known about these eggs yet. They're going to be studied, but they do probably belong to herbivorous dinosaurs. And they were found in the Foshan region in southeast China, which is an area rich in fossils. So pretty cool discovery. Yeah. I always like some new dinosaur eggs. Mm-hmm. Hope they find some embryos. Yeah. The fossilized remains inside the egg. That's always really awesome. Mm-hmm. Super rare, though. But you never know. Yeah. There's also a new article published in Paleontology from the Paleontological Association, and they reviewed the stegosaurs family to try and make sense of some of the recent discoveries, and there are two big highlights in it. Most of it's a little bit dense and unexciting, but they did say that Miragaya is probably different enough to be considered its own genus, and I didn't even know that it got synonymized with Decentrosaurus in 2010, but apparently that happened. <laughs> and now it's potentially back again. So I guess it's kind of a back and forth. I did see Miragaya mentioned in some other recent articles. So it doesn't seem like everybody bought into it being synonymized. And then they also said that Hesperosaurus is probably different enough to be considered its own genus from Stegosaurus, which in the past had been referred to as the same genus. This didn't make nearly as big of a splash in the news as when Brontosaurus was <laughs> listed as its own it's dinosaur again. quite as popular. Yeah. Miragai is pretty awesome, though. I guess it didn't really go away, though. People were still making toys that said Miragaya, and it was only like seven years ago, so yeah, not like a hundred years. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Next, Earth Archives posted a story about Lurdosaurus, which is a possibly semi-aquatic iguanodont that lived in the early Cretaceous in what's now the Western Sahara Desert which is pretty cool to think about. 
that area used to be a tropical rainforest and were full of conifers and other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place include Nigrosaurus, Oranosaurus, Abelosaurs, Spinosaurs, and Carcharodontosaurs. And Lurdosaurus had short, sturdy limbs, which probably meant it was pretty slow on land and grazed its food. It also had a really large belly, which Tom Holtz has suggested could mean that it was semi-aquatic, like a hippo. <laughs> <laughs> and Lurdosaurus was first discovered in 1965, described in 1988 by Sua Chabli, though it wasn't formally named until 1999. However, it's never been fully described, which is too bad because if you think about it, it's pretty strange. It's got a large gut, a flat back, somewhat like ankylosaurs with the, the flat back, and a spiked thumb. Like an iguanodon. Interesting. Exactly. I wonder why it's never been fully described and what that means about its name. Yeah, I don't know. And speaking of things in the water. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. There's a new article that researchers from the University of Bristol and the Natural History Museum in Frankfurt put out. And they looked at areas around bones that are usually interpreted as fossilized soft tissue or soft tissue impressions. Specifically, they looked at an ichthyosaur, Stenopterygius, and the dinosaurs, Cynoceropteryx and Calindodromius. Oh, I like Calindodromius. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And if you've ever seen these fossils, they kind of have like a brown haze around them. And that's usually interpreted as feathers, basically. But they have been interpreted by some as being preserved collagen, which is a fiber that's found in muscle and tendons and other parts of animals, but not in feathers. So these authors point out that there are some flaws with the assumption that maybe that brown hazy material is collagen. And really the only way it works as being described as collagen is that it's really degraded collagen that might have an appearance similar to keratin or basically a feathery structure. So these authors from Bristol and Frankfurt say, quote, we believe that the use of low-quality images instead of first-hand study of the specimens has made it difficult to determine which traces in the fossils might be bone, feathers, sedimentary features, or preparation marks, end quote. And it's a really good point when you look at the published pictures with one of the collagen arguments because they're really zooming in on these low-res pictures, and it's just like almost like big polka dots and they're like these polka dots look like those polka dots <laughs> it's like those are it's just like giant pixels you're not really seeing much detail and that's basically what they were arguing about and then the lines being interpreted as collagen in terms of the preparation they point out that some of these lines even continue across the rock where there's no dinosaur material so it's pretty obvious that it was like a scrape mark from, you know, chiseling it way at the rock to get down to the fossil. Hmm. And then others look at that line and say, oh, look, that line looks like collagen. But, you know, it's, it's just a preparation mark. The authors, it seemed like their main motivation for writing this is to reassert that dinosaurs are ancestors of modern birds. And I didn't see anything specifically in the articles that they were kind of criticizing <laughs> about not believing that dinosaurs are ancestors of modern birds, but they were criticizing the fact that, you know, maybe they're not feathers. So maybe those researchers kind of have a history of saying that, you know, dinosaurs don't necessarily come from birds and we need to be careful about our assumptions. But it seems pretty obvious that dinosaurs had feathers at this point. I mean, we've even seen them preserved in amber a few times now. 
So it's kind of hard to argue, but I guess on a family by family level, you might be able to say, oh, ceratopsians, we don't have amber of ceratopsian feathers. So maybe we can look at those fossils and explain it another way, but I don't know. I mostly wanted to talk about this because we always talk about feathers and dinosaurs evolving from birds as, you know, like a proven fact. Or birds evolving from dinosaurs. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I meant. <laughs> and there are still some people that don't really subscribe to that and think there might be alternate explanations. So it's interesting to see their point once in a while. They're definitely in the minority, though. <laughs> <laughs> once in a while, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they come up with some great evidence, I'm sure a lot more people will be convinced. Yeah, true. Seems unlikely, though. And next up, I have a sort of follow-up from a few weeks ago when my fun fact was about lags or lines of arrested growth, which as a reminder are kind of a way of determining the age of an animal by counting rings in the bone, just like counting rings in a tree. Because animals apparently grow slower in the winter, just like trees do. <laughs> so there's a new study that explains how you can count these lags in ribs rather than in limb bones. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So they looked at Miragaya and they called it Miragaya, even nice. though that other paper wasn't published yet. And they said that they found 22 lags in Miragaya with... 68% of the bone preserved. And really what they mean is that the early years in the rib get erased and replaced with marrow or otherwise some sort of medullary cavity, it's called. But basically, you know, they kind of hollow out. Our bones do that too, to some extent. And because there's that missing piece of preservation they can't estimate exactly how old it is but they know it's at least 22 years old because it's got 22 lags in it they also looked at an ornithopod draconix which had 29 lags and 86 percent preserved a theropod lorinhonosaurus which had nine lags but only 57 percent preserved and another theropod baryonyx which had 20 lags and 81% preserved. And they also kind of had a side note where they said, and we looked at some other bones and it looked like maybe it had things in common with aquatic animals. And Baryonyx, remember, is basically like Spinosaurus. They're very closely related and similar. So a little more evidence that Spinosaurus and Baryonyx might have been aquatic. And then they also looked at a Camarasaurus, but this was through papers so they didn't look at it firsthand. So they saw that there were 37 lags, but they didn't see how much was preserved. That seems old for a dinosaur. I mean, I guess we don't really know what the average yeah. lifespan is. I guess that also makes sense. Camarasaurus is big enough. Once you get big enough, you're going to live a little longer. Yeah. We've talked about that a little bit in the past, that sauropods, we think, might have lived up to 100 years. So kind of makes sense. And they also tease out when the animal reached maturity and growth slowed by looking at the distance between the lags, which is a pretty neat trick. And they say that using ribs is a really nice way to measure age because ribs are so much more common than these limb bones. You know, if you get two femurs, you might get 30 ribs. <laughs> so cutting into one rib isn't as big of a deal. And the ribs actually have a smaller medullary cavity than the leg bones do. So they preserve a little bit more of the history of how old they are. But unfortunately, they still need to use the longer bones because 
the ribs have a little bit more of an irregular growth pattern, so you can't extrapolate into the medullary cavity as well to estimate the full age, even though that medullary cavity is smaller as a percentage of the bone. You know, it's nice to be able to guesstimate the full age, but it's cool that you can use a rib in a pinch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting idea. I wonder how they even thought of it in the first place. You got a bunch of ribs laying around. Yeah. <laughs> what else are we doing with them? <laughs> yeah. Part of the way they did it too was they took a living crocodile, I think it was a crocodile, and, you know, that way they could know the exact age of the crocodile and kind of test their theory to make sure that they were doing it right. Mm -hmm. Next, Heinrich Mallison from Dinosaur Paleo wrote a post about digitizing Giraffe Titan. So Heinrich received funding from the Berlin DGS program with the goal to, quote, obtain high-resolution 3D models of bones from mounted skeletons in the Museum of Natural History in Berlin. And he and a colleague had to take photos of all angles of the Giraffe Titan, which was challenging at times because they had to be on ladders and use tripods, even at odd angles inside the rib cage. Oh, Speaking of ribs. <laughs> After taking the photos, he used reality capture to digitize all the bones together. And there's obviously a lot of work involved. Heinrich says that he expects his scans to hopefully be online soon. So that's nice. cool. You can print a Giraffe Titan then. Yeah. And it seems like there's a lot going on with that giraffe titan because YouTube did that 360 view oh, yeah. of the giraffe titan yeah, a while cool. back. Yeah, it was from the same museum. Next, the Wyoming Dinosaur Center in Thermopylae is building a new facility, which will open in three to four years. The current Wyoming Dinosaur Center opened back in 1995 after dinosaurs were discovered in the area in 93. And it has about 50,000 visitors each year. We stopped there. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So there's a museum, dig sites, gift shop, and prep lab. And the Dinosaur Center broke ground on Earth Day. And they had a special workshop and open house to get input from their community about the project. So it's still very early stages. The architects still have to come up with a rough plan and concept. And then sometime in the summer, they're going to have a fundraising campaign. They plan to make the building eco-friendly and meet the living building challenge, which is where you create more power than you use. And it's going to be large, so it can house the dinosaurs, including Jimbo the Supersaurus replica. Some current ideas for the building, including incorporating smells and sights. So that'll be interesting. <laughs> the smells. I can only imagine. Yeah. I don't really want to smell a dinosaur. Well, they might be good smells, like the vegetation or something. Yeah, maybe. With like the flowering plants starting to evolve and stuff. Yeah. But dinosaurs probably smelled pretty terrible, right? Like, yeah. what would smell good about them? <laughs> if they're a carnivore, they probably smelled like rotting flesh. And if they're an herbivore, they probably smelled like a cow, which is not good. <laughs> they bathed sometimes, so. Yeah. Did they? Probably. <laughs> Some of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe, like, the small feathered ones might have smelled okay, because they might have tended to their feathers to keep clean so they could fly stuff like birds don't really usually smell that bad yeah no, actually big birds do like ostriches they smell pretty gross mm. yeah well we don't know what kind of smells <laughs> they're going for it's still very early days it's true <laughs> it's probably not gross smells it'd be pretty stupid to open a museum and say like we have smells and just do a bunch of gross smells it's, yeah it's probably habitat smells yeah the good kind yeah not like manure or anything <laughs> And speaking of museums that have solar panels, <laughs> <laughs> the 
Thanksgiving point in Utah is going to install some, and they're going to install 1,500 panels, which is about 75 times as many as you'd put on an average house when you're doing a solar installation. Pretty huge number of panels. And they say it's going to be enough to generate 60% of the museum's power use. And I'm surprised that, you know, it's not in that living building or whatever you call it where you're making more than you use. Mm -hmm. Because that's a lot. How are they using so much electricity? Maybe a lot of air conditioning? Utah gets hot or something? I don't know. We've never been. The Thanksgiving point. That's true. They do claim that it's going to save them more than $1.5 million in power bills. Nice. seems crazy. That is a lot of money. And I'm guessing that's probably over the lifetime of the panels and probably not including the costs of the panels. They said it was an affiliation with a solar company. So maybe they're getting the panels for free, in which case that might make some more sense. They're going to start installing the panels in January of 2018. And they say that the timing is ironic since in January, the area is covered by an inversion layer, which is a weather phenomenon that basically traps air down by the ground. And then if you're polluting, like in Utah, a lot of people use fire to warm their houses. It keeps all the pollution trapped down by the ground and gives you kind of a nasty, smoggy air situation. So they're kind of happy that they're not going to be contributing to that because they'll have their solar panels. Well, that's good. But the inversion layer might prevent some of the solar panel efficiency, unfortunately. Guess they'll find out in like seven months. <laughs> yep. Speaking of fires, there's another dinosaur fire story in Jersey in the UK. There was a big fire at Tamba Park. There's a large dinosaur head, which in the picture it looks like a T-Rex or it's supposed to be a T-Rex. And it was in the process of being repaired and then it caught on fire. There were sparks and... I guess a boom sound and then a lot of smoke because there was this mixing of burning plastic and rubber and fire extinguishers weren't enough. So the park was evacuated and closed for the day, but luckily no one was injured, which is just as lucky as the other fire we talked about, the one from Field Station. Yep. On a happier note, thanks to Jess who shared this one with us via Facebook, on June 17th, the Shield Museum of Natural History in North Carolina is opening a new exhibit. Dino Safari. There's going to be life-size dinosaurs such as Stegosaurus, Brachiosaurus, and Triceratops. And visitors will also be able to see fossils and do hands-on exploration in the Dino Safari Lab. We're following up. Love in the Time of Chasmosaurus has announced the winner of their Utah Raptor competition, which we mentioned a few weeks ago. The winner is Castles Made of Sand by Runeville, aka Madison H. And in this image, the Utah Raptors are playing in the sand and there's one that's building a sand castle it's <laughs> a very fun piece that's cool i wonder if that's a play on the how i met your mother sand castles made of sand no apparently it was a Jimi hendrix reference but i don't know enough about Jimi hendrix to know the oh, reference next a young girl in australia showed her frustration at not being able to find dinosaur clothes in the girls section of a retail store so her grandmother kate shared a video of the girl luna and in the video, Luna asks Mr. Kmart, I guess they're <laughs> shopping at Kmart, if he could make dinosaur pants for girls because the store had dinosaur pants for boys. Dinosaur pants, huh? Mm-hmm. Kids get all the good clothes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were mixed reactions, but I agree. There'd be nice to see a wider variety of dinosaur clothes out there for adults as well. Couldn't she just wear the ones that were being sold for boys? That's what some of the mixed reactions were. Oh, okay. <laughs> I <Yeah>. see. <laughs> 
But that's interesting. Her name's Luna. That's the same character, I think, from Moon Girl and oh, yeah. Dinosaur Devil. I think it was. That is interesting. It might be that, you know, maybe she's too small for them or something. I don't know. Could be. I don't know the details. But I know that there are more people making clothing for girls that are STEM related or mm-hmm. STEM oriented. So, yeah. But on the adult side, I've been trying to find more dinosaur clothes lately that are actually form fitting and have not successfully found anything. <laughs> Everything I've tried on, Garrett has said that looks like it was made for a 10 year old. It does. <laughs> it's, it's not great. There's a lot of dinosaur stuff for men, but not very much for women. Mm-hmm. If you want something that's going to fit you. We have more Jurassic World 2 news. So there's going to be underwater scenes and there will be a submarine and probably more marine animals like mosasaurs or something bigger. Although in the article that I found, they kept calling them aquatic dinosaurs. Yeah, they found out because somebody got hired as like a submarine pilot or something, right? Yeah, that's his role. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) It's going to be very different than previous Jurassic Park movies, I feel like. Well, it's going to be spread out in multiple places, I'm sure. Yeah. And they talk about how since the director is usually doing more like horror or thrilling type movies, we've got submarines going on. I'm imagining like U-571 or something. Hmm. (laughs) Also, Jeff Goldblum is going to be making an appearance. Yes. That is exciting. Yeah. It's not clear what he'll be doing in the movie, but I don't know. Maybe there'll be something more about chaos theory. He'll (laughs) be spouting it while there's chaos around the world. (laughs) You can't contain them. (laughs) Yeah. On Jurassic Park podcast, they mentioned like, maybe he'll just show up to say, I told you so. Oh, yeah. Or he'll be like on the news talking about it. I think that's a pretty good guess. It is. I don't really think he'll be a main character, but it's possible. Seems like there'd be too many people going on. Well, if he comes back for an I told you so kind of role, maybe. Yeah. This isn't what Hammond wanted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of dinosaur movies, there's another new dinosaur movie coming out called Danny and the Dinosaur. And it's a live action animated movie based on the 1958 children's book Danny and the Dinosaur, which is about a boy named Danny who befriends a dinosaur at a museum. When they spend the day together, they go to a zoo and eat ice cream. The book has sold more than 10 million copies, and the movie's going to be a comedy. I'm particularly interested in how they portray the dinosaur, because it looks very cartoonish in the 1958 book. Like, cute, but definitely Mm. not at all how we think of dinosaurs today, so it'd be interesting. Yeah, and since it's live action, it's always tricky to (laughs) include dinosaurs. Mm Mm-hmm. And last, thanks to Chris who shared this one with us via Twitter. It's a song by Nick Cope called A Round of Applause for Dinosaurs, and it's part of a collection of songs for all the family. It's really catchy. He's singing with a guitar and there's kids singing along, but it does have some dark moments. It's like this line, And if we were alive when they were alive, then we know we would not survive. They'd eat us with their dinosaur teeth. They'd eat every one of us, you and me. And after they had their dessert... They do a little dinosaur burp, and then there's a burping sound. (laughs) So yeah, it gets a little dark, but still pretty entertaining. That's kind of funny. Especially when it's with that very um, welcoming, sing-songy melody. Yeah. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. 
What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day. Mashiachosaurus, which was a request from Chris via Patreon, so thanks, Chris. The name means vicious lizard. It was a small noosaurid theropod that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Madagascar, and it was named in 2001 by Scott Sampson, Matthew Carano, and Catherine Forster. The type species is Mashiachosaurus knopflerii. It was named after Mark Knopfler, the lead singer of Dire Straits, whose music was considered to be the expedition team's lucky charm because they were listening to his songs when they made important discoveries. Hmm. About 40% of the skeleton was found and included parts of the skull and the teeth, humerus, pubis, hind limbs, and several vertebrae. More specimens were found in 2011 and included the brain case, premaxilla, facial bones, rib cage, and more, and helped scientists learn more about noosaurids. Mashiachosaurus is now one of the best-known noosaurids, and 65% of the skeleton is now known. Multiple specimens from 30 localities were found in Madagascar, and Mashiachosaurus is part of the superfamily Abelosauroidea and the clade noosaurid, which is a group of small theropods. It was bipedal with four limbs that were shorter than hind limbs, and it was about 6.6 feet or 2 meters long. It weighed about 80 pounds or 35 kilograms. A 2013 study of Mashiachosaurus found that it took 8 to 10 years to grow and became the size of a large dog, and that growth rate is 40% slower than similar-sized non-avian theropods. Hmm. But the slow growth meant that it didn't have to consume as much food, which would have helped it in a semi-arid environment with dry seasons and sometimes short supplies of food. Mashiachosaurus had a long skull and a narrow neck, and it had four fingers on each hand, though the fourth digit was reduced, and it had stout, not very sharp claws. 
Originally, the ham bones were thought to be foot bones, so scientists thought that it had a sickle claw on its second toe, but now that's considered to be a finger. It had front teeth that projected forward instead of straight down, which is different from other theropods, and it had what's known as heterodont teeth, which are different shaped teeth along the jaw. Its lower front teeth are nearly horizontal, and the angle of its teeth increases until its fourth tooth, so the rest of the teeth are vertical. These front horizontal teeth haven't been seen in other predatory dinosaurs, at least not yet. Mashiachosaurus's posterior teeth, though, had serrations and were recurved. The front teeth were good for grasping small prey, but not good for tearing large food apart, so its back teeth were better for cutting and slicing. Because of these teeth, it probably had a specialized diet, fish and small prey. Other animals that lived in the same time and place as Mashiachosaurus included Majungasaurus, Rapetosaurus, and Rahonavis. Majungasaurus may have preyed upon Mashiachosaurus based on one specimen found with holes that looked like puncture marks from being hunted or scavenged, though that could also have just been an infection. The old, is it a tooth mark or is it an infection question? (laughs) (laughs) And our fun fact of the day is that the name fossil fuel is really a misnomer. So we've mentioned like the Sinclair Oil Company and how they have a dinosaur on it because it's like, oh, it's a fossil fuel. So it's made out of dinosaurs. But really, the formation of oil and coal is completely different than fossilization and rarely includes dinosaurs. So the prevailing theory for how crude oil formed goes, you have huge numbers of dead plankton, algae, and the occasional other plant or animal that fall to the bottom of the ocean. And then some of them get buried before they decompose, which is kind of like fossilization. But the difference is these remains go under intense heat and pressure, and that gets converted into oil over thousands to millions of years. So it's really kind of like compressing these dead organisms into goop over a really long period of time. And if you're wondering how many dinosaurs got in the mix, William Thomas, a geologist from the University of Kentucky, put it, quote, some of the dinosaurs may have gotten involved in some of this. (laughs) But he thinks, quote, it would be quite rare and a very small and insignificant contribution. So really, dinosaurs weren't going into fossil fuels and fossilization does not occur when you're making a fossil fuel. (laughs) But since I keep saying fun fact because of the alliteration, I can't really be too upset with the term fossil fuel, probably. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) And on that note, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. If you want to join our growing community on Patreon, check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.